Last week, the Senate officially confirmed Dr. Robert Califf as the new FDA commissioner. The move came after a long, puzzling delay at a time when a new agency chief was sorely needed. During that period, as my colleague Lesha Bushak pointed out, the Biden administration was left to manage the vaccine rollout and any number of COVID-19 communication issues without strong FDA leadership. As a result, public confidence in the agency took a tumble due to issues such as the highly contentious approval of Biogen's Alzheimer's drug Adjahelm, not to mention a staffing and management crisis. Now that Califf, who served as FDA commissioner during former President Obama's final year in office, is taking the reins, he'll have to confront a host of pandemic policy and other challenges. This week on the podcast, what will Calif FDA 2.0 look like? My guest this week is Peter Pitts, former FDA Associate Commissioner and President of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest. We'll get Peter's take on all of that. He's also got a new book out in which he asks important questions about the FDA, like whether the agency can still lay claim to being the regulatory gold standard amidst a moving target like the COVID-19 pandemic, and how medicine's regulators can and should continue to enable innovation. Peter, it's been a while. How are you? Doing very well. Nice to be uh, back with you again. Absolutely. Great to reconnect. You know, we got a lot to talk about, so uh, how about we just uh, get into it? As as we said, uh, the Senate last Tuesday narrowly confirmed Dr. Robert Califf as commissioner of the FDA, which was without a permanent chief for more than a year-long stretch of the coronavirus pandemic. And let's just get some obvious things out of the way first. You know, his vote was 50 to 46, with six Republicans crossing the aisle to support him, while five Democrats opposed And those five Democrats had concerns about things like his ties to the drug industry. We saw Senator Elizabeth Warren make him take an ethics pledge that he wouldn't return to industry for four years if confirmed. And it was one of a number of of concessions. And, you know, the job entails a good working relationship with industry. And I I would think many of our listeners being uh, on the pharma side uh, are probably wondering, you know, whether, you know, Dr. Califf can be viewed as an industry friendly commissioner or not. Wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, you know what they call a commissioner that only gets 50 votes in the Senate? They call him a commissioner. So, you know, the good news is that that seat is filled. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's just inexcusable that President Biden let that job go vacant for a year, considering where we are. You know, he said that science is back. Uh, and part of that promise is to make sure the people uh, who are leading our public health agencies, whether it's CDC or NIH or FDA, you know, are in place and uh, getting the job done as early as possible. That didn't happen. But the good news now is that Rob Caleb is in that seat. He's highly qualified. I'm very pleased that he got the job. And I think it's important to remember that beneath that aw shucks southern exterior, you know, lies a, a razor sharp mind who understands exactly what needs to happen. The good news is he has no learning curve. He's been deputy commissioner. He's been commissioner. He's very well aware of all these issues uh, and not just on the drug side either, on all the various uh, programs that the FDA regulates. You've got the UFAs coming up, both PADUFA and MADUFMA and others. And I think the timing is good for him to really make a lasting mark on a, on a variety of things that the agency does. And on, on the uh, U.S. public health at large and on, on global health as well. The fact that he has a lot of experience in, you know, dealing uh, or handling an agency like the FDA, which relies on industry support, but yet has to obviously maintain its impartiality. Um, that's that's a balanced, a very nuanced uh, position that, that he has to take. So, um, you know, you're saying that that experience will, will serve him well. It will. I mean, I, another thing I shouldn't forget, because oftentimes this point gets buried and forgotten, is that Janet Woodcock, uh, the acting commissioner who had been director of CEDAR uh, for many years, has said she's going to stay on as his principal deputy commissioner. That's incredibly important. And it really shows you've got a, 
a real dynamic duo of people that recognize the need for the FDA to be both regulator of and colleague with industry. And as you've mentioned, that's a very tricky tightrope to walk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, some of the concessions that he made um, during the confirmation process could tip that tightrope a little bit, you know, or, or slacken it. You know, for instance, Ron Wyden wanted him to promise to clean up accelerated approval, uh, which obviously uh, was used to um, or involved with the Agihelm approval, which we'll talk about a little later. How will those kind of commitments you know, affect his commissionership? I think they're going to uh, make them uh, at the top of the list. But I think what, you know, the, the, what the senators want him to do versus what might actually happen are two separate things. You know, when a commissioner says that issue is top of mind, it doesn't mean I'm going to do what you want me to do. You know, when Joe Manchin basically says that Rob Califf and Janet Woodcock caused the opioid epidemic uh, in this country, they're wrong and it's insulting. Uh, do we need to focus on making opioids uh, safer uh, and used only as appropriate? Sure we do. And Rob Califf and Janet Woodcock have both worked very hard to go back and look at the labeling and give much more thorough information to physicians. And as a result, the volume of opioids being used in this country has fallen dramatically. You know, without uh, limiting the use for those who use them responsibly and need them on a, on a regular basis. When it comes to things like e-cigarettes, you know, it's it's a uh, da- it should be a data-driven conversation. You know, what does the data say about smoking cessation? What does the data say about nicotine addiction? You know, how can we help uh, make sure that these products aren't used by underage audiences? And that isn't strictly speaking only an FDA problem. It requires kind of a public health ecosystem solution. And that's another great thing about Rob Caleb. He recognizes how to reach outside uh, White Oak to people in CDC, to NIH, people in the White House, to private industry, to academia, to patient groups, and look for you know, work, workable solutions. Uh, you know, when it comes to accelerated approval, well, uh, Ra, you know, uh, Senator Wyden asked five very, very smart questions about you know, moving forward. And what Rob Caleb basically said in his very short reply was, those are good points. We're going to look into it. I'm a big believer in accelerated approval. You know, quote, unquote, cleaning it up doesn't mean stopping it. It means doing it better applying the best science and new techniques such as, as real world evidence. And of course, if you wanna take real world data and be able to translate it into real world evidence, you need to have the groundwork relative to validation methodologies, which is exactly what he was working on during his last stint as commissioner. So I think that he's well-placed to address these questions and a multitude of others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point about real world evidence, RWE and, and things like the patient voice you know, and, and drug approvals. Those were things that you know, percolated really over those years, say the Obama years, perhaps, you know, and forward into the Gottlieb years, and that we now realize are essential, you know, to, to the overall process. And he was right there in, in the thick of it. That's exactly uh, right. Yeah, People forget that he is a, a, a revolutionary, as is, as is Janet Woodcock. And we can talk about Exondus, we can talk about, about Aduhelm, some people agree, others don't. But, you know, he's not, Rob Caleb is not afraid to uh, you know, break China in terms of moving uh, the FDA forward and embracing kind of 21st century regulatory paradigms. Mm-hmm. Well said. You mentioned accelerated approval. Let's, let's, um, let's, let's pause on that one for a moment. You know, another one of his challenges now that he's permanent chief is dealing with the aftermath of that accelerated uh, review approval from last June. Its approval was opposed by many in the medical and scientific communities, talking about Agilhelm, because the efficacy data is is equivocal. And it's quite an expensive drug, even after Biogen halved the price. 
I know you've said that, you know, while uncertainties remain, thanks folks, that's science, you know, welcome to um, how science gets done and that the FDA made the right decision by Adjuhelm. Do you still stand by that? I certainly do. Well, for, and first of all, it's important to note is, you know, the, the pricing conversation is incredibly important, but that can never be part of the FDA conversation. The FDA cannot make decisions based on how much drug is, is going to cost. Uh, although certainly when it comes to things like uh, health literacy and uh, you know, health equity within clinical trials, the FDA has a very potent voice to play. Relative to Aduhelm, you know, this is a disease, Alzheimer's disease, uh, that is going to bury us uh, unless we start making some progress in terms of treating it and hopefully one day uh, reversing it and potentially even, even curing it. And you, it, this isn't like in the movies where between commercial breaks, all of a sudden you, you find a gee whiz discovery and the disease vanishes. There's very, there are very few disease states that really benefit from discontinuous innovation. Uh, there are some, hep hepatitis C, for example, change almost from one day to the next. But generally speaking, innovation happens incrementally, one step at a time. And I believe that the science behind Aduhelm really signals a, a path forward to better, more complete treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And if the big ding is that amyloid plaque is not a validated biomarker for Alzheimer's disease, uh, those people need to wake up because that is really our, our best science at the moment. And to say we shouldn't do anything until we know everything, AKA the precautionary principle, that, that just stymies innovation. It reduces investment in innovation and excitement about addressing the disease state. We can't allow that to happen. I really hope that Biogen and the FDA work very closely together to aggressively capture real world data to understand how this drug is working in the real world. That's a commitment Biogen made. They've got to, they've got to stand up and make sure that it happens. And if they don't, I believe the FDA should have to make them suffer the consequences up to and including revocation of their patent. And of course they, they do have, uh, Biogen does a post-marketing trial going on right now to, to determine that. The public confidence in the agency in the wake of that approval did take a blow. Um, do you think we'll see any changes in regulatory policy to address this decline in public confidence? The good news is that largely because of COVID-19, people actually know what FDA stands for, and they recognize that it is an important public health agency. So that in and of itself is a huge step forward. The problem is, and this isn't only an NFDA problem, is that government agencies, uh, let's say CDC and FDA particularly are in the news now, are having a very hard time communicating not just what they do, but what they're saying. They're not very good at proactive communications. When I was at FDA, one of the areas under my authority was the Office of Public Affairs. And I had a meeting with that staff and I brought a telephone. I said, listen, guys, this telephone comes with buttons at no additional charge. You know, the FDA has to learn how to speak to the American public. You know, our health literacy rates are abysmally low. We've got to address that. And that just reinforced the fact we've got to talk to people in, in ways that they're willing to understand. I think there's tremendous amounts of residual respect for FDA among the American population, we've got to build on that. We've got to make sure that the American public understands that the FDA follows the data, that 99.9999% of the agency are public health officials, not political appointees, that in CBER and CEDAR, there are zero political appointees, zero. Uh, they need to understand that PDUFA fees don't pay for approvals, it pays for reviews, and that there's no undue political influence. Now, unfortunately, when the White House says, the FDA is going to reach this decision in two months. That's inappropriate. Uh, it sets communications and trust agenda back. And if science is back, and I hope that it is and continues to be, the White House needs to understand that they can't speak for the FDA. The FDA needs to speak for itself and on its own time schedule. 
What do you think the other um, staffing and management priorities will, will be for Dr. Califf? Well, we're coming up uh, on a lot of UFAs, as we, as we mentioned, and clearly the ask is always more staff. And I think that's legitimate. You know, the FDA still remains you know, horribly underfunded. You know, when it comes to staffing, you know, the FDA needs to not just hire, which is hard enough, but also train. You can't simply hire more bodies and expect them to be on the job doing excellent work uh, in two weeks. You know, the FDA needs more money for training. You know, senior staff, you know, from uh, the Obama years has been saying the FDA needs to do things in more sophisticated, data-driven ways that include uses of artificial intelligence, uh, surrogate biomarkers, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, but when you get to the divisional level, staff is used to doing things the way they've always done it. You know, the status quo is a harsh mistress. So I think what, one of the things Rob Califf has to do is empower line staff to do things differently. And I think that you see that conflict uh, within debates like Aduhelm uh, or Exondus for uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, where career staff is uneasy doing things differently. Quote, unquote, that's not the way we do it here. Uh, not acceptable. You know, when, when the commissioner, however, says this is the way we're going to do it, we are going to do new things, you're going to be rewarded for trying things that haven't been tried before. I think that goes a long way to moving the agency's kind of gestalt forward in terms of being willing to accept new ways of thinking about things. I also wanted to get to the book, and uh, it's called The Next Normal. Is a compilation of many of your best essays, thought pieces, editorials, letters to the editor on a host of pressing healthcare matters. And just to kind of call out some of my favorites here, uh, you talk about COVID's effect on FDA regulatory policy and uh, how it may have permanently altered its approach. The agency learned how perhaps to balance its need for scientific robustness while acting with urgency during the pandemic. You know, take the uh, emergency use authorizations uh, example that, that you cite, uh, you know, which the agency used to authorize everything from the vaccines to tests to uh, even digital therapeutics. Do you think we'll see EUA, EUAs in peacetime, so to speak? You know, what remnants of the pandemic will outlast COVID? Well, I think the, the interesting thing about EUAs that people don't seem to understand is that the E stands for emergency. So it depends how we choose to define what that word means. And clearly, COVID-19 uh, you know, was and is a public health emergency. The question then becomes, well, what about cancer? What about Parkinson's disease? Uh, what about other you know, serious and life-threatening diseases, or ALS? Are they emergencies? Uh, you know, I, I would say that they are not. But I think one of the lessons from COVID-19 is that when, we, when the ecosystem works together to solve a problem, we can get it done swiftly, creatively, you know, and with excellence. And I think that's a lesson that's being learned, not just by FDA, but by the entire you know, health, healthcare community. I think if we can learn how to focus on an issue together, rather than you know, shooting arrows at each other on a variety of issues, you know, cost being you know, at the top of that list, we can accomplish amazing things. And when you go, I think when the, when, the, when the book is written on COVID-19, uh, what's gonna be you know, the first chapter and the conclusion is what we did in such an amazingly short period of time. Now, you know, let's be honest, you know, mRNA was not invented for COVID-19. It had been around for a while, but the opportunities that we recognized and took and the risks that we accepted paid off handsomely. Uh, and I think those are lessons to be learned in terms of not just uh, how the FDA regulates, how the FDA operates as a regulatory agency, but how we define urgency in healthcare. One of the other uh, points you address is, um, you know, whether the FDA can still say it's the regulatory gold standard, you know, amidst a moving target like COVID. You know, what, what's your take on that? 
you know, everybody wants to be the best, you know, especially Americans. And the FDA believes it is the world's gold standard, and, and maybe that it is. But the truth is, it, it doesn't matter. I think one of the um, beautiful things about Rob Califf is that he comes to this job with uh, no ego. Rob Califf is willing to work with anybody to get the job done. And I think FDA in the past has been a relatively poor intramural player. You know, it's always, uh, we'll do it ourselves. And when we get it done, then we'll tell you. You know, and take, for example, uh, validating biomarkers. Why is the FDA the only place where those can be validated? Why can't others play in that game as well? And I think that one of the lessons from COVID, and I think Rob Califf understands this very well, that FDA needs to be not necessarily the gold standard, but certainly the first among equals to drive these types of intramural propositions. Uh, you also have a, a chapter in here on vaccine, vaccine hesitancy uh, in which you address the misinformation uh, problem. You know, just to give an idea of the scope of the problem, just this week, a new survey came out by the COVID States Project showing that a third of Americans who believe coronavirus vaccine misinformation are aware that they're in disagreement with scientists and medical experts. And, you know, this suggests that educating people on the science behind vaccines won't be sufficient to change many minds. You know, what do you think is the, is the way forward to address this misinformation pandemic? I think the issue here is that you have to educate people in ways that they're willing to understand and that they're ready to listen. And I'll give you an example of part of the problem. Uh, ma mandates have caused a tremendous divide. You know, it's made the lines firmer for those who are vaccine hesitant or vaccine denials. You know, Tony Fauci, for example, you know, a, uh, a guy that's devoted his life to, to public service and has done you know, tremendous things in areas of HIV, AIDS, and clinical trial design, and expanded access, and others. He is not the guy to be the, the administration's spokesperson. The vaccine hesitant don't listen to Tony Fauci. They don't like him. As soon as he comes on television, they stop listening. So, you know, through no fault of his own, he needs to step aside. And the president needs to appoint somebody new to be the spokesperson for the government's effort to beat COVID-19. And in my opinion, that person is Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. He was also a uh, Obama administration official. You know, he's extremely ar articulate. He looks great in a uniform. And I think that the public who is not the, the unvaccinated population or the, un the, the, fully, the people who aren't fully vaccinated, which when you, take, when you take the population that is not fully vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated at all, it's like 35% of the population. That's a lot of people. We can't continue to do things the way we, we've done it in the past and expect to succeed. That's just in, insanity. And that's especially true for uh, people under, under 12. The government needs to rethink its communication strategies. Having Tony Fauci stand up and say, do it because I said so, might be applauded in some circles, but it's not going to move the needle where that needle needs to be moved. Mm. So it's, all, it, it's, the, it's the message and it's also the messenger. Obviously, the American public needs a certain amount of health literacy to interpret uh, you know, what they're reading. How do we address that lack? I think the first thing to do is to empower the Surgeon General and give them a budget to regularly educate the American public on important healthcare issues, to have a division of health literacy, to educate people about you know, vaccines, for example, or about the annual flu, or about the importance of washing your hands, or certainly we've, we realized uh, the urgency of educating the American public relative to uh, cigarette use. That's been a tremendous success. And we should recognize that if you, when you educate the American public appropriately, they, they tend to do the right thing. It, that effort does not even exist now. So I think that a, a, a presidential effort led by the Surgeon General to educate the American public on a variety of healthcare issues will pay tremendous dividends.
Okay, and, and as you pointed out, a lot of the misinformation problem uh, is due to miscommunication among the federal agencies, exacerbated, if you will, by the lack of health literacy. So, all right, Peter, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you.